Amen. All right, good morning. Uh, like Josh said, uh, my name is Jake Noyes, and I'm the small groups coordinator here at Flourishing Grace. And I'm, I'm really excited that you could all be here with us as we continue through the book of Acts. Uh, if you've been with us this summer, you know that we've just been journeying through chapter by chapter. And, and we're going to continue that today, but we're going to do something a little bit differently today before we start. We're going to do a little bit of trivia. So, we all have grown up in the scientific age, right? With technology and, and scientific advances happening each and every single week. Uh, for, for those of you who don't know, in the last 150 years, there have been more scientific, scientific advances than in the previous 10,000 years combined, right? That's crazy when we think about it. We've seen advances in, in biology and physics and chemistry, and these have all made our lives infinitely better. Healthcare is, is so far advanced today because of all of the advances that, and all of the, the studies that we've done. Um, but we were all born in the last 150 years, right? So we kind of get are immune to what's actually happening. We all grew up with all of this technology and all of this research happening right in before our eyes. And so I think a lot of times we start to forget that it was happening or that we ignore it. But I have a couple of, of questions today that I want to answer to see if any, anybody here knows the answers to these. First, does anybody know what's at the center of the Milky Way? Anyone? Bountiful? Yes. Yeah, nougat. That's exactly right. Because the, in the galaxy, the galaxy that we live in, where, the, where we're just an arm floating around a star, right? At the center of our galaxy, they think, they think there are superclusters, which in and of themselves are totally mysterious. We know absolutely nothing about them. But the truth is, we don't even have any idea what's in the middle of our galaxy. But that's, you know, that's kind of obvious. It's the universe. It's a big thing, right? How about our ocean? Does anybody know what's at the bottom of the ocean? Any, any guesses? Rocks? We don't, we don't know. Only 5% of the entire ocean has been mapped at this point. We know more about the surface of the moon than we do about our own oceans. In fact, more people have visited the surface of the moon than have been to the depths of our ocean. This one, this one might bug you. It drove me crazy. It's still driving me crazy right now. Does anybody know why we sleep? We all know what happens if you don't get a good night's rest, right? We know that if you're not feeling well and you go to sleep, it helps you feel better. But does anybody actually know the reason why we need to sleep? Because science can't explain it. Uh, there's a doctor at the University of New York that said, uh, his name's Dr. Michael Halassa, and he said, it's sort of embarrassing, it's obvious we need to eat, but it's not clear why we need sleep at all. Like, we know we need sleep, but we don't actually know why our bodies need sleep. This is the last one, because there's a bunch of cyclists in here. Does anybody know why a bike stays on two wheels? We can't explain it. There's a bunch of theories as to why, even, some guy even came up with this really complicated mathematical problem that is so far beyond me, I'm not even going to try and explain it, but nobody actually knows why a bike will stay, even without a rider, you can make a bike stay on its two wheels. It doesn't make any sense. Physics can't explain it. And, and those are just a few of the questions that we have. In this information age, in this day and age where we can, we can have the answers to just about everything from our phone, Right? When I research my sermons, I have my phone next to me because I'm doing a bunch of research from my phone. There are still really fundamental things that we can't answer. And scientific, scientific discovery has been the main focus of our society and of our culture for years. And I think that when we can't find the answers, it's frustrating to us. We're not good with mystery. We don't feel good about mystery. And because of that, 
When we can't solve something, we just sort of abandon it. And that's kind of what I want to explore today. I want to answer this question. I want to answer the question, where am I missing the work of God in my life? And what things am I trying to explain away or take credit for that are really a gift from him? So if you've been with us for the past few weeks, you know we've been walking through the book of Acts. uh, And Acts was written by Luke. Um, And right now, there, as we've been studying, there's this overarching theme in the book of Acts, right? There's, this, there's the church is persecuted, and then it grows. The saints are persecuted and executed and tortured, and then the church grows. And we see that theme continue time and time and time again. And the gospel message is continuing to expand, expand across the Roman Empire, which results in more and more people coming to know Jesus. And last week, we started to, on Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey through southern Galatia. So Josh talked about how Paul and Barnabas entered Antioch, and having been from Jerusalem, were given the opportunity to speak at the synagogue. When they entered the city, the first thing that they did was go to this religious center. And because they were from from Jerusalem, the, the, the leaders there said, hey, why don't you stand up and tell us what's going on there? And so Paul never misses the opportunity to share the gospel. And so he stands up, he shares the good news, and he talks about how the prophecies of the Old Testament have been fulfilled, um, and that the Messiah that they've been waiting for has come. They've been executed, forever, executed all to fulfill the promises made in the Old Testament for his jo- chosen people. We also talked about how the Jews had this religious system, and when the Messiah showed up, they missed it. They missed it because they had become distant from God. They didn't actually know God. Rather than having a relationship with him, they had started to use their religion and their faith as a means to gain power, to gain, to gain wealth and autonomy. So Paul stands up in the middle of this synagogue and he, tell, t- he delivers this powerful message and it's not in a particularly articulate or eloquent way, right? He just uses plain language. But the message is so powerful that the following Sabbath day, the whole crowd or the whole town comes out. In verse 48 of chapter 13, it says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord as many were appointed to eternal life and the word of the Lord was spreading through the whole region. So there's this big explosion of converts, right? And has been the case continually, the Jews decide that they don't want Paul and Barnabas in this town anymore. So, so they, start, they start influencing the leaders of the day and they force Paul and Barnabas out. So Paul and Barnabas travel up 100 miles south of where they were to a small town, or excuse me, a large town called Iconium. And just like Antioch, Iconium is a town that has, uh, that, that, that has a synagogue. It's a, it's a major place of commerce. It's run by the Romans, but it's heavily influenced by Greek culture. And so Paul, the first thing that Paul and Barnabas do when they get to a city like this is they go to the synagogue, right? So they run to the synagogue and they start proclaiming the good news. And at that time, there's a division in Iconium. Half of the people start to follow Jesus and they believe what Paul is saying and the others persecute him and push against him. And so over the course of time, Paul's left with no choice, Paul and Barnabas are left with no choice but to leave Iconium for their safety. So that's where we're going to be today. So go ahead and pull out your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there is one underneath your seat. We're going to be on page 1022 of that. And we believe at Flourishing Grace that this is the inspired word of God, that every word in this book was breathed on by him. So if you would, out of reverence for that, would you please stand with me? So we're going to be in Acts chapter 14, and we're going to start in verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. 
He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Iconian, the gods have, become, have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn away from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good, good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and take a seat. All right, so Paul and Barnabas enter into Lystra, and Lystra is about 20 miles south of Iconium, and it's, it's kind of like the Wild West. It's not like, like uh, Iconium, and it's not like Antioch in that there's a, there, it's a big bustling city. It's a small, little city. Uh, they don't, it doesn't have a synagogue. It, it's, just, it's just kind of stayed the same for a bunch of years, and, and, and it's, it's not like where they've been. Um, it kind of reminds me of like, like Logan, Utah, right? If any of you have been up to Logan, it's a small town. It's kind of like 10 years behind everything. It's a great town, but it's, it's weird. And if you know anyone from there, it's, it's weird, okay? So Lystra's kind of like that. It's kind of this small little town. It's just a little bit different. And so Paul and Barnabas walk into the town, and they, they start looking for a place to camp out and start sharing the good news. At this point, there's no, there's no synagogue for them to go to, which is exactly where they've gone in the previous two cities. So they start scoping out the town, and they see a nice little area, a nice little corner that they're going to go start at, and they head over there. And on their way there, they see this guy sitting on the road, side of the road. And, and they just kind of notice him, right? Paul just kind of takes notice of him. And Paul gets up, and he starts, he starts proclaiming the good news. He starts telling people about Jesus. And in verse 8, it says that he sees that this guy has the faith to be healed. In other words, Paul sees this guy sitting there, and the Holy Spirit reveals to him the condition of this guy's heart, that he has the faith, that he's listening intently and understanding what Paul is saying, and that because of this guy's faith, the Lord is about to do something really magnificent in his life, and he says, get up and walk. And that is like the best way to start off your ministry in a city, right? With an, with an amazing miracle like that. See, remember, this is a small town, so this guy who's been sitting there for years and years and years has been sitting and begging. Everybody that is in the town would recognize who he is. They know that this guy's been crippled for the entirety of his life, and now he's standing up. Now he's standing up and walking, and it's, it happens when these two Jewish guys show up and start talking about the Messiah. They start talking about this, this character, Jesus Christ. And I can only imagine how amazing that moment was for those people. It, it's, it kind of reminds me of, of, of the moment in Princess Bride, like the feelings that you get when you see Wesley stand up at the end of that movie, right? There's just like, there, there's like relief and joy and excitement. All of these things happen because he's been laying on the bed and when Prince, Prince Humperdinck walked in the room, you thought, oh my gosh, this is it. 
And then he stands up and he bravely lifts his arm. And I just think that, and I remember as a kid being so excited in that moment. And I think that these guys, these men and women in Lystra who just witnessed this are probably experiencing that on a much greater scale, right? They just saw this guy that they've seen their whole lives, probably a guy that they've started to ignore, right? That guy that's been sitting on the corner for their whole lives and now all of a sudden he can walk. I can't even imagine just the excitement that would come from that, the awe that would come from that. You would just be, be taken away. And as you can expect, the people start to stir. They just saw this amazing miracle, but there's one problem, right? There's one problem. They don't understand where that miracle came from. See, I mentioned that this is a small town, that it was under Roman rule, Greek influence, but it still maintained its own Lyconian identity, and meaning that they still speak their own language. So Paul and Barnabas come in and are preaching the good news in Greek, because they understand Greek, but that's not their first language. So as, as the excitement, and they're stirring, and there's just all this excitement, they start talking in their own native tongue, and they say, look at these two men, surely they must be gods, because in, that, in the Greek mythology, there's a story of Zeus and Hermes visiting a town, and nobody recognizes them, and nobody wants to be the people who missed the gods show up. So they're really excited, and they're talking about what, what Paul and Barnabas have just done. And they're saying, saying, look at these men. How did they do this? How did they heal this person? And I can only imagine how confusing that was for Paul and Barnabas. When I was in, when I was my first semester in college, I was playing in California. I was going to school in California. And the dorms were like a, there was just a big area of dorms. And my neighbors were all Puerto Ricans and only one of them spoke English. And I don't know if you've ever heard a Puerto Rican speak Spanish. I don't speak Spanish, but I know that for Spanish, they were speaking incredibly fast. And so we're standing outside my dorm room, and they're having this conversation, and, and I get invited over, and I go over and I stand there, and you do what you do when you don't understand. You just go, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. And then suddenly, they're all walking to my car, and I'm like, what, Where, what, what are we doing? And the one guy turns to me and says, oh, you just said you would take them to Bakersfield, which is like an hour away. And I'm like, no, I, no, I, no, I didn't. He's like, well, we're, we're going to Bakersfield. So lo and behold, I'm driving to Bakersfield so these guys can go shopping, right? That's what happens when we don't understand the language. And I think that's what's happening to Paul and Barnabas. I think Paul and Barnabas are in this moment, and they are just, like, they get caught up in the excitement. They, they too, just witnessed this miracle. They're excited. They see the people. The energy is, is really exciting at the time, and they're just sort of sitting there taking it all in until, until things start getting a little bit weird, right? Then suddenly, the priests start bringing oxen and garland, and Paul realizes what's going on that point, Paul realizes that something isn't right, and he looks around, and he sees as this livestock are coming in, and, and, and the garland is getting, they're trying to drape them with garland, that they think that they, Paul and Barnabas, are gods. And so knowing that, knowing in, in Jewish culture that would have been absolute blasphemy, so Paul and Barnabas rip their clothes, and Paul says, Paul says, guys, we are not gods. We're just like you. We bring you a good news. In verse 15, what he said was, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you and bring you good news that you should turn away from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In other words, what Paul is saying is, is guys, you are worshiping the creation. You're worshiping men, not the creator. 
Now, the reality is that these Lyconians, while it seems a little foolish at the time, are not that far off. See, the culture in Lystra, unlike today, where we, like I said earlier, we're a very scientific culture, their, their culture was very focused around religion, right? So these guys, they could not explain it. They would, if they could not explain it, they were going to attribute it to a god, which is exactly what they do. They try and say, this is Zeus and this is Hermes, right? Rather than trying to figure out all the little intricacies of it, what they do is they say, we just have to worship this great thing. We saw this miracle, we have to, we have to worship it. And we look back at moments like these in the Bibles, and they seem strange, and the people seem a little bit foolish. And I think one of the reasons is, is because we think, why wouldn't they try and understand what happened? Why aren't they listening to Paul? Why aren't they taking in and absorbing the data so that they can figure out what exactly happened? But I don't think that these guys are that far off base. Sure, their attention is focused in the wrong place. But they witnessed this incredible miracle. They couldn't explain it. And rather than worrying about explaining it, they began to praise and worship. But if that happened today, if we witnessed an amazing miracle like that, if you were downtown in Salt Lake City right, right now and you witnessed a miracle like that, what would you do? I think there are two possibilities. The first one is we would take those people and we would stick them in a lab. Right? We'd stick them in a lab and we'd start subjecting them to, to x-rays and MRIs and taking blood tests and we'd be trying to figure out how did they accomplish that? It simply couldn't have been a miracle. How did they do that? There has to be a way that they did that. We wouldn't think, oh man, that was obviously the work of God. We would think there has to be an explanation. And the more and more we pressed into it, the more and more we searched, the more and more we tried to understand the miracle, I think the more confused we would be. And so then we would assume that it was a trick, right? We wouldn't assume that it was the work of God. We would assume that it was, there was some type of, of, of trick that fooled us. At no other time in history has a group of people had as much access to information as we have today. We literally have access to just about everything at the ease and convenience of our phones, right? And if we cannot get the answer that we want immediately, it's super frustrating, right? How many of you have picked up your phone and asked Google for something and not gotten it, or Siri or whatever? If you're using inferior iPhone technology, it's Siri. But if for everybody else, it's a Google phone. <laughs> I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. Right, but how frustrating is that? You yell at Alexa and ask her for help and she, she, doesn't, she doesn't know the answer. We always think that's gonna solve an argument at my house, we just say, oh, we'll just Google it, and then when we don't get the right answer, we're still fighting over it, right? At no time in history have we ever had that type of technological advancement and, and, and access to information, and the collateral effect of this scientific age, right? The collateral damage that has happened is that we grow further and further and further away from our perceived need of God. Western society, right, has spent the last 150 years trying to figure out how we exist without a God. Books are being written every single day talking about the death of God. How do we continue on in Western civilization without God? Because we don't need him anymore. We're moving into an age where we have gone from worshiping the creator to one where we worship ourselves. And as a result, we all start to lead lives where we don't think we need God. Because Western society has, has penetrated our hearts and mind and told us that we don't need God, even though we don't think that the same way, right? Maybe we still say we need God, 
but our actions don't necessarily deliver on that. The result is that our object of affection has become mankind. We've replaced God with idols. Think about how celebrities consume our news feeds. We worship these lavish lifestyles, and all we can think about is how do we get to that same point? How many people in here have said at some point, if I ever win the lottery, this is what I'm going to spend my money on? Because we think that at some point we're going to be wealthy like that. That mindset comes from, we think that at some point, where do we get to be wealthy and rich? We want to build this little empire so we can say, look what I've created, look what I've done. I want to be remembered and I want to be loved and I want to be adored just the same way that these celebrities are. And it's created this me-centric society where we start to worry about all of the things that we can accomplish on our own because of what of we have done. We see it in 24-hour news cycles where they're filled with inaccurate information because we simply need to, to get the news out. We want to have access to the information. We don't care about the collateral damage along the way. We don't care if we're lying about people or telling them terrible things. We just want to be first because we want the time and the attention of the people watching. And what happens when we're so focused on ourselves is we miss the work of God. We miss the work of God in our lives because we're too focused inwardly. We get caught up in the creation, not the creator. We get focused on the messenger, not on the message. Our faith becomes a tool for our pleasure, not a genuine love of God. We decide we need to exercise our faith when we need something from God. We're not serving and worshiping him, we're trying to get something from him. What can God do for me? It's not about having this deep and flourishing relationship with him. It's about him providing me with what I want. Something traumatic happens in our life and we decide that we're going to press in and, and see if the Lord can fix it at that time. And can you imagine if someone treated you that way? Can you imagine if you had a friend, in fact, we have all had that friend that only shows up when they need something from you. They need money, they need to borrow something, they want something from you, and that relationship deteriorates so quickly because you won't tolerate that. But we expect God to tolerate that from us. And can you imagine if God reacted in the same way that we did? I think we even see this start to creep into our churches. We begin to idolize the men that stand on this stage. We don't go to church because we have a need to be filled by the, by the Spirit of God. We don't go to church because we want to commune with his people. We go to church because we want to be entertained. If the preacher's not good, if the preacher's not entertaining, I'm not going. Oh, the music? Oh, I go to that church because I love the music. But if the, church, if the, church, if the music went away and that pastor went away, would you still attend that church? See, we like the idea of Jesus, but not the real Jesus. I read this quote by Lloyd Ogilvie, and it's always, it's always stuck with me. He said, when Jesus was born, there was no room at the inn. But today, we not only have a room at our inn, but a penthouse suite away from reality. Jesus is a VIP to be honored, but not believed or followed. In America, he is a custom, but not the true Christ a captured hero of civil religion, but not Lord of our lives. In other words, 
Jesus has become an idol. He's just some far off distant figure. We don't have an intimate and personal relationship with him. He's a celebrity. And so my question for each and every single person here, including me, is where is Jesus in your life? The psalmist reminds us in chapter 8 that God, uh, God loves and cares for each and every single person, that he is mindful of you. But do you realize it? Do you see it? Do you see God working in your life each and every single day, or do you chalk it up to normal occurrences in life? Is it just simply a coincidence? When you got that promotion at work, was that the work of God, or is that because you did all the hard work to get there? Is the birth of a healthy child the work of God, or is it simply just fortune based on biology? In Jeremiah 29, the prophet tells us that, tells us that, that, that Israel, that God has plans for Israel, and that they will, when they pray to him, he will listen. And the same is true for you and me. The Lord controls each and every single moment in your life. We may not understand why something's happening, right? The reality is, is that also includes that there's going to be times when bad things happen. And that doesn't mean that God's hand's not in it, that he's not, that he doesn't have a purpose for it. And I think if all of us look back at our lives in the most simplest of ways, we can see how God is working in our lives. You know, a, a few years ago, when I was working at, at, at an insurance company, I really wanted this promotion. And the promotion was to be a supervisor. And I thought, man, I, I really want this gig, mostly because I didn't want to do what I was doing at the time. I didn't get the job, and I was really upset. But a few weeks later, a manager from the marketing department walked by, and, and I studied English so that, so that I could do this, but also so that I could get into to writing sales material, which sounds really exciting, but it's fun. And so I wanted to do that. And this marketing manager walked by, saw me, stopped, and we had a conversation. Within two months, I was hired and doing that. If I had been in control, I would have been working as the supervisor. But God had something better in store for me. I think that's true of the way my baseball career ended. I tore my labor in playing volleyball, and I wish, I wish that I could explain how devastating that was at the time. I thought my whole, I had my whole life mapped out exactly how it was going to go because, of course, you, I know everything about how everything's going to go. And I tear my labrum, but had I not torn my labrum, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't have the relationships that I have now. I wouldn't have the kids that I have now. And I appreciate those things more now looking back because I see that God had a plan in place. I see the work of God in my life, but not always in the moment. I had to stop and think back and look back at how God was doing it because today, Oftentimes we miss it. And I think we have to ask ourselves, where does Jesus rank in our lives? Is he Lord? Do you wake up hungry to experience a moment with him? Are you excited for the chance to engage with his people? Are you longing for time that you get to spend alone in the word of God and praying, just listening to the spirit, being in tune with what God is doing? Or is he an afterthought? Is it more important that I sneak in that extra nine holes. Is it more important that, that I get to spend a day at the mall or go to the lake or whatever is most, in, what do I see as most important? Is it my time, is it your time, or is it time I can spend with God? 
Because I think the, time, the more time that we spend with Jesus, the more we engage in our relationship with him, the more we see the work of God in our lives. That's not to say that he isn't going to do more work, right? I'm not saying that he does more work the more we engage. What I'm saying is, is that he, we see how he's actually moving in our lives. The Lyaconians didn't understand what was happening in their midst, but they had the right response. They witnessed the work of God, they saw these miracles, and they saw no other option but to start praising and worshiping. And my prayer is that that would be true of us as well. That we would see the work of God in our lives and that he would move us to this place of sincere worship. That we would understand that the God of all creation who paid the penalty for our sin by sacrificing himself on the cross wants to have more than just a casual relationship where we look at him from the distance. The more we experience him, the more we grasp the magnitude of that sacrifice, and the more we seek him, the more we're going to realize what he does in our lives each and every single day. Would you bow your heads with me? Father God, as we look out onto creation and see all the things that you've done for us and all the ways that you move in our lives, God, I just pray that we would be focused on you, that we would hear your voice and that we would know you deeply and intimately. And that like the Lyaconians, God, that we would, have no, we would see no other option but to praise you and to worship you. That we wouldn't get lost in the chaos of today. That we wouldn't try and explain away the things that you're doing in our lives. But Lord, worship you, see you, and grow closer to you. And God, we pray these things humbly in your name. Amen.